This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hey, for the wild community, it's Ayana here, and I wanted to share an update with you before we converse with Zion Khan. There is one week left to become a founding member of the podcast on drip. I co-founded this podcast four years ago improving my way through never having done a podcast or really knowing what I was doing or where it would go. And it's pretty amazing to go from a sort of unpredictable chaos of not even knowing how often I could do an episode to now releasing a new episode every week, collaborating with a team of six glorious humans. But we run our course of being able to do this with little to no funding. And now we need help from our community not corporate sponsors who would just try to silence us. If these conversations matter to you, contribute on Drip. Our link is d.rip slash for dash the dash wild. And there are a few tiers to choose from that come with little treats such as bonus material from guests like Stephen Jenkinson and others, and also new ways to interact and engage with the content. So we need your help to continue this podcast every week. Otherwise, we'll have to release less episodes. Thank you to those who have contributed already. It means a lot to us. All right, now on to the show. The encouragement of the current agro-industrial complex that has created such decimation socially, but also obviously environmentally, economically also, every step we take kind of feels like we're stuck. The silence is broken by somebody crying, trying to be heard, never a word. Always the attitude, sort out your own, always alone. Wishing for something the world is denying. Out in the wilderness, somebody's crying. Somebody wishing for something to happen Wishing to tell, wishing to help Someone was listening, someone who cared Never despaired Someone to lean on and someone to trust Who needs your assistance and finds your disgust Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Zayan Khan. Zayan is from Cape Town, South Africa, and works in understanding nuances within food systems by navigating land from an interdisciplinary perspective. 
Firmly rooted in socio-political context, she works at unhinging our dependence on neoliberal consumption. Currently, she is interested in food through the lens of art, specifically to find ways to share stories, both of struggle and solution, and how these influences self-care. Zayon is currently completing a master's degree within the environmental humanities at the University of Cape Town. Her research, entitled From Seed as Object to Seed as Relation. Thank you so much, Zayon, for being on the show. This is our first time we've spoken to anyone from the African continent. So from the west coast of Turtle Island, our deepest welcomes to you. Thank you so very much. What an honor. I've never been to South Africa, but from what I've learned, the political and geographical landscapes of South Africa are both awe-inducing and haunting. And as we know, what is haunting about how people treat one another is inseparable from what is haunting about how this civilization treats land. And the lands and waters of South Africa's Cape just sound divine, and it's considered the fifth floral kingdom and one of the most biologically diverse regions on Earth. It's home to 9,000 species of vascular plants, 69% of which are endemic. So I'd really love to begin this conversation with reverence for this unique landscape you call home and ask you to speak about the ecology of the Cape. And then perhaps a second part to that question is how apartheid or the continuum of settler colonial structures has impacted not only the way South Africans are able to live in relationship with the Cape, but also the flora and fauna themselves. Such an ancient land here at the the southernmost tip of the continent, and such a massive landmass as we know as well. And sometimes we feel very isolated here at the bottom because it's very far away from, for example, the rest of the country. We're in the very southwest. But there's a lot to be said for the fact that we're such a coastal country. South Africa, I think it's roughly around 5,500 kilometers. I'm not sure what that is in miles, but it's pretty large of coastline. And here where we are is one of the meeting points where both the oceans, the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean meet. So this, I imagine or I understand, gives rise to a very diverse coastal environment and ecologically i think we know as little about ocean ecology as we do about the galaxy about the universe there's so much diversity there's so much even invisible that exists underneath the oceans right beneath us that that we've never even met before species that we you know can't even imagine and this influences the land in such a way and the geology of the land the landscape and in its antiquity and how that shapes the way we move around the city, the shapes the way that we, the foods that we eat, all of these things and how so much of that has been lost and so much of that has been buried that to this day when I find myself as in my, what am I now, in my 34th year, being born into the family I've been born into, in this body that I've been born into, it has guided so much of who I am, but it's so much about what I do is from this land. And it would be so difficult for me to leave and and be somewhere else because I would be a little bit lost. But when I kind of take a moment and look up and step away from that, and I look around me at all the people who are drawn here, who have been drawn here for centuries, 
for many, many, many generations, even before colonization. This has always been a very powerful place that's called people for for time. And it becomes so obvious as well. There's definitely a, a force that attracts to this land. And with all the endemism, it becomes such a shame that so much of it, like I said, does get buried. And so much of it is, I guess, a lot of that knowledge system and a lot of that is lost. And especially through things like the development of a city, especially through things where a huge agricultural zone, not just of the land, but also the oceans. There's so much that's happening, but also so much that's having to stop happening. In regards to your question around the influence of apartheid and just generally, I think if we can just, we look at, kind of look at the, the heritage, if I can say, of capitalism, the way that it came into the Cape through the Dutch, through the British, this, this kind of imperial global trade, the, the global corporations, as it were, and the kind of influences that it's had on the Cape and through things like slavery, where, for example, my people would have would have come through. So something like where I work around food, our food is so inherited from those global trade systems, from those colonized cultures, that to find a sense of endemism in our food system, that indigenous food reclamation and the work that's happening around there, it's very, very complex and difficult because apartheid really severed a lot of the ties that people have with land because people were forcibly removed for hundreds of years, denied access, denied crossing rivers, denied access to the mountains, to the places where the food flows and has flowed. And to this day, if you come to the city, you will see that our city is basically built around the mountain. We have the two oceans that I say kind of meet at the coastline and the coast rises very sharply and quickly into the mountain, which is uh, the Table Mountain, which is now a national park. And then it kind of falls behind the mountain out into what's called the flatlands. And in the apartheid system, when the apartheid spatial planners were designing the city, they would literally lift whole groups of people and say, okay, this area, like on a map, this area is now going to be a whites only area. And so everybody that lives within this space needs to move. And where are we going to move them? Oh, no, I don't know. Let's see. What about this space over here? And so we call them the Cape Flats, which is basically a very flat land as opposed to the high rise of the mountains. And in this flat land is, it's, it's very sandy. It's very, our land is typically very sandy or very clay. So it's very light in color and very acidic. I need to get that right. Acidic, alkaline, alkaline, acidic. I always forget, but it's not very fertile. But yet the plants that grow in these environments are so diverse. They're so beautiful and they have supported life humanity here for you know it's one of the centers of of origin of humanity here in the southwestern cape and the research the archaeological and ethnobotanical research that resides in this space in the cape and the west coast and, and this region of south africa speaks volumes of the kind of human histories that have been very rich that have existed healthily that you know have give, given rise to populations and so those lands where people were forced to move to naturally in winter, we are a winter rainfall area. 
we'd find that those lands would fill with water because they're full of aquifers. And so it's very funny that we've had this drought for the past few years, and, and this year has been uh, the worst hit of it, the least amount of water that we've had, supposedly. Because naturally, the mountain acts as a massive sponge, and it absorbs all this beautiful water. And all through the year, whether it's 45 degrees Celsius heat, the water is flowing from the mountain. And not only is it flowing, but it's flowing very sweetly. You know, it's, we call it sweet water. Kwe Kwe original name of this region is Kamisa, which means place of sweet waters. And this is why it's always been such a rich place for people to come to, because it's if you're passing on a ship or if you're coming by foot or whatever the case is, there is so much abundance of water. But it also means that in the flatlands, the water will rise and people are generally living in wetland in the wintertime. So with this kind of mass settlement of apartheid spatial planning, you kind of very quickly wipe out vast ecosystems to accommodate thousands of people that you now have to rehome and rehouse. It's a very, very beautifully complex landscape, both ecologically, economically, politically, culturally, environmentally. And the stories can kind of just continue to bubble. Have I answered that second question sufficiently? Absolutely. And thank you for sharing the beginnings of the complexity to all of these different pieces. I want to focus in right now on apartheid. And you had mentioned it a few times in your last reflection. And when I was looking up apartheid, it is a noun that literally is defined as separateness. And like colonization itself, apartheid should be looked at not as an event, with a beginning and an ending, but as an insidious structure that continues to shape the economic and psycho-spiritual well-being of the Black body. And as a system of institutionalized racial segregation, apartheid in South Africa officially ended in 1994, yet South Africa remains one of the most economically unequal countries in the world, with 1% of South Africans owning 70% of the wealth, And given that Cape Town was spatially engineered to physically separate Africans and colonizers, I'm curious to hear about how the legacy of apartheid is living on in the infrastructure of the city and the fabric of the communities. Yeah, it's deeply, I think it's it's in the spirit of the people now. It's that moment of our so-called independence, 1994, Nelson Mandela is released from prison. There's a lot of cheer. There's a lot of joy. We're free now. Democracy. The future is great. The rainbow nation. I don't think there was ever a a moment where people actually questioned, okay, but how does independence from an apartheid system come out being thoroughly healed? How do we how do we move forward in a way that processes the kind of traumas and grief? that we've known of the past. And I was 10 years old in 1994. And we had something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where people who had committed apartheid crimes were put on trial, so to speak, and faced uh, their victims or faced the families of those who they had afflicted. And there was this kind of, I guess, like using the judicial system or using a a tribunal in order to, I guess, encourage that healing or 
you know, at least try something, but it, it didn't really last and it didn't really do the kind of work that needed to be done. There wasn't that transition. There wasn't, everybody just kind of picked up and like, okay, right now, today, but there's no apartheid. So today we're fine. Today, racism doesn't exist. Yet we know that these things, exactly as you've said, that they're so embedded in who we are. And, you know, fundamentally, I think also that, that once we start working through healing and understanding that it's not just the people that have suffered, there's so much suffering that's come into play that the land itself is heaving with pain. And if we look at an easy way to see this as well is when we look at the oceans and because we're such a coastal country, the oceans form such a big part of who we are, even economically. It's one of the oldest industries that we have is the, the ocean industries. And even I think maybe a year or two ago, South Africa was granted. I don't know who gives this kind of granting, but that South Africa has more jurisdiction over the oceans. And thus, if we look at it in terms of surface area, South Africa has more jurisdiction over ocean surface area than land. And so fundamentally kind of operates in that way, I guess, as an island. And if you were to come to South Africa, especially to the Cape, the most common reaction that people have is that it doesn't feel like you're in South Africa, let alone that you're in Africa. One of the legacies of our history is that there are so very many white people. And in our kind of the indigeneity of this land, the Kwekwe, known as, also known as the Sun, uh, the Khoisan, in apartheid we had this racial profiling. And I know in America it's, it's a very bad way to say this, but here we say that you're black, white, or colored. So if you're like a mix of the two, you know, if you're in the middle, then you are known as colored. Um, and then that has different racial profiles. So I'm of, I would have been of a racial group called Cape Malay, which is of Malay descent, um, often of the Muslim faith. And then you have, you know, then they'll sub classify also as Indian, as X, as Y, as Z, all of these other things. So there was all this kind of confusion. And now, you know, now that we're not in apartheid anymore, do we still classify in terms of race? Like, what is it? We're a rainbow nation and we need to celebrate all different races. I mean, but obviously at that moment as well, it was, I think the biggest thing that happened was that our trade embargoes that we had experienced the decades before and all kinds of embargoes, not just trade, but, you know, certain musicians weren't able to tour to South Africa. Like Bob Marley wasn't able to come to South Africa because he spoke out against apartheid, you know. A lot of uh, artists and musicians were, in, were exiled. And so a lot of the true wealth or richness of our land through our people, like the artistry, a lot of South Africans haven't even heard. And so you find a lot of musicians have been recorded elsewhere in the world. And, and, you know, these legacies kind of never even came back home. And it also, it's, it's such a, a strange feeling, like this kind of decented homeness, you know. But what I was saying was that the, the one of the biggest things was that with the trade embargoes that were lifted, all of a sudden, post-94, you started getting all of these welcoming of the free market system, a welcoming of privatization, because we now, and I use quotation marks here, we had to catch up with the rest of the continent or with the rest of the world in terms of economy. So all of a sudden things would, you know, the, the floodgates opened and you'd have these huge corporations coming into the country, for example, like Parmalat, 
which essentially killed the local the local trade and the locals specifically around food because with those trade embargoes a lot of the food and a lot of what was being produced locally was being consumed locally and so you had a much more finite system and you had much more support for the smallholder fishers and farmers but as soon as that free trade opened up and the market became privatized all of that fell away and so this discrepancy with economy and and how the poorest of the poor is the majority of the people it makes sense that it happened because in a in a way it was designed to be that way but now we're sitting with situations for example where like with this drought where those who have access to the water are still a very very small percentage of the population of our city and a lot of people are sitting without any access to water or water is getting trucked in and i think there were very specific things that happened over the past few years to kind of lead us to where we are now one of which was the marikana massacre which was the lonman mine the miners banding together and realizing like we are doing the worst of the work the most hectic of work yet being paid so little and we have to stand together and and demand better conditions you know not just better pay but better conditions living away from family in conditions very ill for how do i say bad for the health and so on and that ended up being a massacre where police opened fire on the striking miners the following year if i'm not mistaken and then again when was it 2012 we had farm worker strikes around the conditions on farms and specifically the wine farms in the southern cape where the same thing there are still farm workers who are getting paid on the dop system which was an apartheid system where farm workers are getting paid in wine and of course all the effects that that has and so as well as the fact that now people are not being paid a very good wage people have been born on the farm and for generations now you're living on the farm yet you have no rights to the land that you're living on you can get told to move at a moment's notice if it's your husband that is working for the farmer and he passes away then everybody has to get out and where where do you go you know so all of these conditions and all of this silencing and making these people invisible these people who are working in the mines who are working on the farms the silencing of them and then after that we had the the fees must fall roads must fall movement which was so profound because immediately that was based within the cities as opposed to being a rural experience right that and it was the the children in the homes of mostly middle class families who could take the movement forward and really talking about issues of inequality within the university systems how are we going to treat all the students equally yet fees cost so much yet we we're living in a colonial legacy that is not comfortable that is actually very violent and all of these things are rising 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 and bubbling and it it took those kinds of moments for people to kind of turn around and say whoa no wait apartheid didn't end actually you know i think a lot of people were living in this rainbow nation bliss but not only did it not end but it's so heavily embedded in everything down to the water so yeah it's it's it, it is also something that is going to take a lot of work to unravel and because it is so embedded in in everything that we are and all of who we are but it also comes at a time where globally a lot of these 
issues, I guess, around, for example, around identity and being much more vocal and the global uprisings that are happening, they're all connected. And there, there is a way for all of us to continually, to continually be self-critical and to understand where our limitations and our soft judgments lie within ourselves to be able to unravel constantly and I guess towards that to not have the fear to do so because change for a lot of people is very difficult and to be able to I guess be a better person or to be able to understand what struggles people are facing whether it's our own or others it doesn't matter what kind of economic bracket you are in this case as well for example with mental health the need for compassion is so paramount, but also to forward those struggles that are more than our own. And so there's that constant, it's like a, like a shuffle or a constant balance to be able to recognize that and to have enough grace and humility to stand down when standing down is needed, but then also to be able to stand up when, when it's time to. So for, for those of us who are of the younger generation in South Africa, it comes much easier. But our parents, our elders, a lot of it is not easy at all. So it's just, I guess, just this constant backing and forthing and lots of prayers and lots of, lots of discussion and lots of trying to figure it all out because this is one of the last things that I'll say. But a good example of the discrepancies is when we look at the struggles around food there is um, an organization that's been monitoring how much a basic basket of food costs, comparing it to basic economic, for example, like the minimum wage that we have. And so we know that the minimum wage is X amount, but how much does a basic basket of food cost? And so they quantify it in terms of a nutritious basket, which includes fruits and vegetables, these kinds of things. And then a very basic basket of food, which is just covering basics, which is things like flour, oil, sugar, salt, a milli meal, which is like a type of corn flour. But all of these things are very nutrient or nutritionally deficient, nutritionally defunct, very refined. I did an art about it actually called Our Food is White. Because all of this stuff is like, you know, it's really, really refined food. It's all these different shades of beige and white, basically, because the meal meal has to be, you know, the whitest of white in order for it to be good. But that is not, you know, at all what a nutritious basket of food looks like. And so this is what the majority of the population is eating, is food that is not nutritionally there at all. It just kind of fills the gap because that's what people can afford. And so if that's, if the basic health of the population, I think we're still on a, I think our, the stats still stand, which is one in four go hungry every day. And so much of that hunger is hidden hunger. So it's hunger that's not vocalized. It's hunger that's not seen. And so when you look at that, if you just look at a, a school of children, how many of those children are going hungry every day and are not able to learn, let alone to just basic function of growing? And then through the workforce and how many of our people are going to work every day and unable to eat a nutritious meal. And, you know, so all of these things, the complexities are so complex. If you look at the kinds of legacies that we face, yet there's just forward, forward push towards being more and more economically viable. And, you know, the neoliberalism of it that's become so entrenched in how 
people also want to be seen and the kind of desires that people have to be seen at a certain supermarket or to be eating a certain kind of food. You know, all of these, the cultural things that have become cultural norms, even though they might not be what's best for people, the complexities are so complex that it's so difficult to unravel them or like, whoa, let's just take a step back and just assess the situation. There aren't really moments for that. And so we find ourselves having to work in very curious ways through this, but at the same time without burning out, because that's also a very real reality. That's also something that we are faced with. You know, a lot of activists and a lot of people who are working within these spaces are just not able to keep up with the amount of work that is needed. So yeah, just I guess finding this balance within this time that we're in, which is I think also can be pretty magic because I think we are moving forward. It's just how can we do that with the kind of gentleness or a kind of, I guess, grace so that the work that we do is empowered and can be empowering. thinking about the word decolonization right now and like many phraseologies decolonization has come to mean different things to different people for instance the indigenous scholar of turtle island eve tuck they're very immensely critical of how decolonization is being thrown around loosely as a metaphor for various types of liberation and emphasize yeah, yeah. that decolonization actually requires the literal repatriation of indigenous land and relationship to land. And while the imperialistic powers that be of the United States are far from recognizing 
the decolonizing imperative of land repatriation, South Africa is abuzz with talk of land reform. From what I understand, when apartheid officially ended in 1994, the African National Congress claimed it a priority to transfer 30% of white-owned land back to the people by 2000. Yet within a willing seller, willing buyer framework, only about 10% of the land has been returned. And in response, the far-left political party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, have been pushing for an amendment to the Constitution that would allow land expropriation without compensation, which is being reviewed until August. So I'd love to invite you to share your thoughts on the land reform controversy unfolding in South Africa right now, and what do you think a dream land reform policy would look like? What a question. I used to work for an organization called Surplus People Project. They work on the west coast of South Africa. And they're a land reform organization, one of the very few that still exist in South Africa. And maybe I should just give a quick story about that. When in the the later part, I think from around the early 80s, there was a research project called the Surplus Peoples Project, an academic research project. And that quickly became a kind of basis for activists working around land reform to band together and In later years, it became an organization, a non-governmental organization. But basically, the apartheid government, when they were forcing people off land or they had required land to use for whatever they willed, the people who were living on that land that needed to be forced off or would be forced off were called surplus people. These extra people, what are we going to do with these surplus people? And so this, this immediate kind of identifying people in this way, obviously, will lead us to believe so much about what those people are and who those people are. And a lot of that is still kind of stuck. So at the moment, we have a lot of uprisings happening in the city. People who were forced out of the city generations ago, even decades ago, and moved about 25 to 30 kilometers out of the city, still in the district, but out of the city, in housing that was not the same. The, the, the law states that you have to be relocated into a similar situation as you are. So if you're living in a house with four bedrooms and a this and a that, then that's what you should get in the new space, but also with access to schools, access to the local, anything that you need, for example. But obviously that doesn't happen because the city isn't built that way. The city is very diverse. It's got the mountain on the one side and then the flats on the other side. And so it's difficult to to give that to people, but there was no other form of compensation. And so all these kind of uprisings that have been happening are very indicative of the fact that apartheid actually hasn't ended because people are still being forced off. The other day, we drove down one of the main strips in the south, a road called Military Road. And on the side of Military Road, there were just a whole lot of houses. It happens all over the world. But just to, we talk about apartheid as if it was, but it still is. And everybody's stuff, all their furniture, all sitting outside the lawn, outside these blocks of flats. And the way that you noticed it was that if you were driving or walking down the road, you'd see all these police vehicles. And there's this trauma from apartheid from when people were marching and when there were uprisings, then we'd call them the Caspers, the Kaspir, those 
big vans that are kind of bulletproof and they're very scary looking vehicles. So we have similar ones now still, the riot vans, basically. And you'd see all these riot vans, like what is happening? And then just glance over and see, oh, people are being forced out. Elderly people, people, you know, with nowhere to go, that they literally just covered everything with plastic. And you'd see them at night in their sleeping clothes, like in their pajamas and having gone to shower at the the neighbor's house. But what else are people going to do? And not violent at all. Yet there's all these armed policemen and all these Kaspirs threatening in case anything does happen. But at the end of the day, with what Surplus People Project do is the work that they have is very important because on the west coast of South Africa, where you were saying that in ANC, African National Congress, is talking about this transfer of land when they came into power in 94. Yet what had happened was during apartheid and subsequently people that were forced off land, a lot of people were granted land back, but that was more in the east of the country and that would have been what they call the homeland. So they then look at the kind of African model law and looking at the different tribal systems that exist, going through kind of the the kingdoms, the different chiefdoms. And so that was all established. But on the west of the country where Cape Town is and where this organization, Surplus People Project, work, like hardly any of it was reformed. And still to this day, it's less than 2% of the land was reformed. And most of that land is kind of natural landscape. It's desert or semi-arid desert, or we call Karoo. But it's lots of farmlands also, game lands, this kind of thing. So people are farming animal and, and different kind of farming systems. But the kind of farming that is in existence is decimating for the landscape. And if you kind of just at, at certain vantage points, you can stand and you can look out over many kilometers and see that because of this drought as well, and people have been farming things like wheat and canola, which I think you guys call rapeseed. Yeah. These are very thirsty. They extract a lot out of the land. And so when the drought hit, the land was just, it was just sand and soil and blowing for kilometers across and just lying naked and exposed and kind of as if it had been torn. And the further up you go, you start to see that even though these spaces are some of the most diverse spaces in the world, when you look at them, it looks as if there's nothing growing there because the plants are so finely attuned and adapted to those environments that they almost look like their soil. The only land that kind of continues to be reformed, and it's it's almost redundant in many ways, is because they have divided the land up in, in specific types of land. And so one of the lands that gets reformed is what's called commonage land. And commonage land is often land that's, to put it lightly, it's not really of use to anyone. It's, it's land that's used to be dumping ground. It's land that it used to be have building on it. Or, you know, and now the buildings have been taken away. But this is the land that, that people are given to farm on, which is not nutritious. It takes a lot of work to make that land fertile and healthy. So it's a very redundant system. What's happened recently where our president stepped down and we got a, a new president for the time being, and the new land reform policies have been re-sparked and spoken again of. We're very interested to see what has happened. But ultimately, ideally, if I could see a, a land reform process that would be perfect, I guess, would be one that allowed for a certain amount of, how do I say, it? on the one hand, there is so much land. There is so much land. And 
if you look at the kind of farms that the big farmers have, the big kind of white farmers, some farmers have so much land that they, they never even visit all their land in a year. They have so much land that, that goes across the country. Very, very, very wealthy individuals. But if you look at that piece of land, a lot of it isn't even used. There's no one living on it. It's it's not quite virgin land, but it's kind of kept that way. And so there's these different crucial points. And the one is between social and ecological, environmental, where the argument is that, no, but we have a botanical legacy or we have a natural history legacy. And this is a great point for tourism or this is a great point for our blah, 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 blah. So a lot of emphasis is placed on those spaces and that land. And of course, which is also very valid, but ultimately what that means is that there's also this what Frank Matosse is a sociologist, he calls the militarization of conservation, which means that within the conservation lands, no people must reside. And that deep connection that a lot of people have with the natural land to be able to hunt, to be able to forage for food, to be able to harvest from the ocean, all of these things people are immediately cut off from. And so people are forced to farm. And on the one hand, a lot of conservationists will say, yes, but if people are allowed to forage and harvest and hunt, then it will decimate the natural populations of the animals and the plants and et cetera, et cetera. Yet, as we know, it's not this that is decimating the populations. When we look at the kind of developments in agriculture that are just literally plowing hundreds of kilometers of ecosystem away. If we look at the kind of illegal mining that happens in South Africa also, where coastlines are being decimated and whole coastlines are crashing to the floor, the power plays and the shift of outlook to where the power lays. And I mentioned it earlier, but the way that we see the poorest of the poor and the way that we see poverty that when there are uprising in the street, because of the legacy of apartheid and the violence of the uprising, when there was uprisings, you were told as a kid, like, don't go to those places because they're throwing petrol bombs, there's fires in the tires, there's this and that, the roads are blocked, they're throwing bricks at the cars. So you're instilled with this fear, but never really encouraged to engage further because actually, fundamentally, systemically, this is the reason why people are, are forced to use violence. This is the reason why people are claiming land and occupying land because other side of it, nothing is happening. And there's still this kind of fear towards the white farm owners or the landowners to not stir up or disrupt too much because that's where the economy lay. That's where the money is coming from and da, 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 which is also like very much a half truth because that money does not trickle down to the people and even the people who are living on that very farm. So it's a very complex system. And so I guess my answer to the question is, it's almost like even with this experience of working for this land reform organization, I'm still not entirely clear about what a land reform process ideally would look like that kind of ticks all the boxes of needs. It definitely runs along the lines of breaking down those those lands that are owned by one person, even if it's a trust, those huge mass land masses and subdividing them. And also what is very important to go hand in hand with that, which doesn't get discussed at all in any of the national conversations is around agrarian transformation. 
So we are very much stuck in that colonial mentality of farming, of agriculture, and we've kind of lost our African understanding of agriculture, if I can call it that. We've adopted these foreign ways of farming. And I believe because of those, the opening of that free market system and the need to catch up and have higher yield and be operative on a global scale, the encouragement of those, of, of the current agro-industrial complex that has created such decimation socially, but also obviously environmentally, in many cases, economically also, we're kind of in this like every step we take kind of feels like we're stuck. So it's vitally important that the land reform process has to have agrarian transformation embedded within its discourse. Otherwise, we're just going to be in this very similar situation, perhaps just a different race in power. That's how it feels. And so there's not systemically, it doesn't change. It just looks like it's changed from the outside.
I think about what happened in Zimbabwe in 2000 when yeah. I think it's Mugabe, the controversial leader who stepped down after reigning 30 years following a coup last year and the violent seizure of over 800 white-owned farms causing thousands of settlers to flee. And it really just shows the messiness of what land redistribution as a reality looks like, as well as the unwillingness of settler descendants to give up what their ancestors stole. Yeah, Yeah, it's just the mind virus of capitalism muddies the waters of land reform even more, you know, as corrupt and power-hungry politics shape if land is actually redistributed justly. It's just, it's such a, it's such a messy situation, but I really hear that, yes, it's about land redistribution, but it's equally about what happens to the land once it's redistributed. And I hear that with the industrial agriculture takeover, how the land really should be tended. And also who gets even access to the land once it's been expropriated and without compensation. And also, do you think that this land redistribution in South Africa could revitalize traditional or more communally based land stewardship? And I guess the last thing I was thinking about is while reading about what went down in Zimbabwe, it was interesting to hear about the economic decline that followed the seizure of white farms. And I think it's important to reflect on the potential disparities between what the media portrays and what is being felt at the grassroots. And I wonder, was the economic decline of industrial agriculture considered a good thing in rural Zimbabwean communities? So I know I just threw out a lot of questions. If there's anything there that sparked you, I'd love to hear about it. Otherwise, there's so many other things I want to ask you about, but this is just such a big topic. On the one hand, it's very specific to each region. When you speak to Zimbabweans, when they they talk about the difference between Rhodesia as it was under colonization to what it became then Zimbabwe, there's good and bad and everything. And the amount of displacement that's happened subsequently in Mugabe's reign, where a lot of people will say, a lot of black Zimbabweans will say, no, things are not good in our country I was lucky enough to go to Zimbabwe, I think the year before last, around Seed and Knowledge Initiative, which is a research institute that works around seed and knowledge in the the Southern African Democratic Community region, and very much based initially in between Zimbabwe and South Africa, but the other countries within the economic community also. And having gone to Zimbabwe, we went to a very rural part in the north uh, east. And still the same and, and, and talking about the differences between the two. And yes, some things are good, but yet if it was the way things are now, but 80 years ago, it might be a different situation. Because currently this this neoliberal industrial complex that has embedded itself in everything is one of the biggest reasons why the suffering is so much. Of course, it's very complex with the kind of um, political arena Zimbabwe is in. The basic things that we can count on or monitor, like hunger, for example, like minimum wage, like access to basic amenities, then looking at at, at other aspects of it, like how much freedom do people have, how the fact that so many people have to flee the country just in order to survive. So there's, there's so much to consider and so much to count into everything, but there's still that kind of 
I don't know how one would call it, like the spiritual acknowledgement of, you said it so well with land stewardship, because what is owning land? You know, what does that mean? And how, how strange is it that you can, that you can own a piece of land? Now it kind of makes sense in the sense of that ownership is just, you know, everything is owned and that's what capitalism is. But to also answer the previous question, that ultimately a land reform process that is healthy and a land reform process that counts or ticks all the boxes with, you know, socially, economically, politically, etc., would be one that encourages a communal sense of land stewardship. And you'll find that in many different spaces in South Africa, whether it's tribal, indigenous, whether it's people from the cities that have moved out into a rural space and have created this, those also come with a lot of issues. And, and often there's a lot of social and cultural complexities that, that are at stake or are at play in those spaces. So it's not a very hard and fast understanding. And I think each situation, each person and each space of land is going to have its own successes and failures at the same time. But it can't happen. The other part of it is that the government, from what I understand and all my work with government, is that the government isn't really of South Africa. Ne? It's not really in a space to support a process such as this because the kind of support that is needed is that people have been severed from the land. There's none of that learning from your gogo, from your oma, from your grandmother. You've been forced off. You were lucky if you were able to leave the land with your seeds. People often just had to get the hell out of there because they had a gun to their head or whatever the case is. So the relearning of what it is to be a steward to the land, of being able to take care and being able to work the land to the point that it's not about you, it's about the generations that you will never meet. So those kind of difficulties within this neoliberal structure of life is where it becomes uh, very difficult. And so on the one hand, it has to be a slow process so that it can be steady and it can be secure. But on the other hand, man, this process has taken so long that it has to happen now. It has to happen 100 years ago, basically. So I think it's going to be like the most contentious <laughs> issue that we that we face for a long time, a long, long time. Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was from Greg Kowalski from the Mexican Summer Music Label. And our theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River from Kate Wolf. I'd like to thank our incredible podcast production team, our editor and producer, Andrew Storrs, research director, Mass Magolski, media director, Molly Lebov, and research assistant, Francesca Glassbell. Questions were crafted by Madison Magolski, Francesca Glassbell, and myself. If you haven't already, please contribute to the podcast through Drip. There's one week left to become a founding member, so go to d.rip slash for dash the dash wild and make a contribution there. All right, thanks so much, and until next time.
Drifting on the wind Through the mountains like a river 